Imagine how hard of a decision that is. When you're in a startup, you're scraping for every dollar of revenue, and you're gonna say, here's these four audience groups that are paying us. We're gonna not focus on them anymore, right? Like that's unbelievably hard. But it was the pivotal turning point in that company because once they made that decision, it basically improved every single metric you could possibly imagine in the company. That's Brian Balfour, the founder and CEO of Reforge an organization that offers selective, growth-focused programs for experienced professionals in marketing, product, data, and engineering. Brian was previously the VP of Growth at HubSpot and an EIR at Trinity Ventures before that. Brian has raised over $30 million in venture funding for various startups that he's launched or joined. Brian also has extensive experience building growth teams and strategies. He's one of the leading experts on user acquisition and retention and frequently writes on both the Reforge and his personal blog. What Brian is talking about is a difficult decision HubSpot made a few years into its business to refocus on just one audience, which led to its hyper growth and subsequent IPO. Focus is key to Brian's approach to building scalable growth systems, as we'll see. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Veriano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Today we're speaking with Brian Balfour, a leading expert on user acquisition and retention. Brian was previously the VP of Growth at HubSpot, which later went public. He's currently the founder and CEO of Reforge, an organization that delivers growth-focused programs for experienced professionals in marketing, product, data, and engineering. Brian joins us to share his story, how he got into tech and startups, how he's approached developing a growth mindset, how to prioritize growth strategies, why he started Reforge, and much more. So let's get started. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Before we get into what you're currently up to today, can you tell us a bit more about yourself, where you're from, and what did you study? Yeah, so taking me back. So I uh, I was born and raised in Michigan, about a half hour outside of Detroit. Um, grew up there my whole life and uh, went to University of Michigan after high school. And I studied a few different things. Like uh, I actually studied sports business along with like applied stats and economics. So few random things. I only probably use a little bit of it today in, in, uh, in my job today. But most of the technology stuff that I do now has been like completely self-taught along the way. So after college, I spent a little time in Chicago and spent about six years in Boston um, doing a couple different VC-backed startups, one in the uh, uh, social gaming space during just like the crazy times of the Facebook platform and Zynga and Playdom and all those guys emerging. Uh, and then one in the education space called Boundless Learning. And then uh, through some twists and turns, ended up at HubSpot as the VP of, of growth and then left there a couple of years ago to uh, start my newest company, Reforge. That's amazing. So where did your passion for tech and entrepreneurship come from? Yeah, so it's interesting. So both my, you know, both my parents are teachers. So it's not like I come from a huge like family background of entrepreneurship or anything. But if I think I, if if I like think way back, actually, even in my childhood, I was always 
like trying to create things. You know, obviously it started off like as as a kid, just like in all the normal stuff of like Legos and, you know, models and like all that kind of fun stuff. But as I got into high school, I tried to create my first like actual business, which was like this leaf and lawn mowing business. And then like even I got into college, like it really kind of took off in college when I started my first company, we raised some angel backed money. Long story short, we were like one of the many failed stories of like a college specific social network before just around the time that Facebook emerged. And uh, I think that's like really where I caught the bug, which was, you know, I created this thing in college. It was really for myself. Like I was one of the customers. And while we did like a lot of great things, but it didn't ultimately end up like succeeding, I saw how Facebook emerged out of that process. And like, just, I think from that point forward, I was like, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And so like that, that's how I caught the entrepreneurial bug. Like University of Michigan at that time was not an entrepreneurial place at all. I think it's changed a lot since from what I've heard, but like we were just not like in the right environment or any of that kind of stuff. And that's ultimately what, uh, why I've spent like pretty much the majority of my life thereafter in, in a tech hub like Boston or, or, you know, SF. Awesome story. So as you were taking us through that, you know, high level overview of your experiences, you've obviously done a ton of different things throughout your career from starting your own companies to raising funding acquisitions and more. So what have been some of the most impactful moments for you in your career? Oh, wow. Um, It's hard to narrow it down to the most impactful. I mean, I think certainly that first company when I started in college, there, like I really lived, you know, like I did the whole, we would drive to all the college campuses to promote. We slept in our cars, lived on like nothing budget. Like we we went through that, right? Uh, But I think think the most important, impactful thing there was just like we made all of the classic mistakes. Like every single one you could possibly think of. We didn't have the right mixture of a founding team. We didn't focus the product. Like we tried to build every single feature under the sun. Just like all these things, right? Like that I think are way more common knowledge now just because I think there's just a lot more shared insights around entrepreneurship than there were back then. But uh, that was unbelievably impactful. My second company, my first venture back company, Viximo, that was an amazing experience just because I was, you know, 22, 23 at the time. And we pretty much had like no product. I didn't even really have a team. And we ended up raising like $5 million of venture capital just like off of a couple pieces of paper. Like just the, the fact that somebody was like willing to give that to me to like try this completely undefined thing, just absolutely mind blowing. But that was a roller coaster, right? Uh, and that we had some major ups and downs. We and, we, we went through like multiple evolutions of that thing. But I think the thing of that is like, I, I really learned that experience. I really learned how to build a team. So I was lucky enough to eventually find a co-founder. His name was Sean Lindsay. He was a little more mature. He was probably about eight or nine years ahead of me in, the, in, in my career. And he had been through some team building. And, you know, we, I just remember with like the first 10 people that we put together on that team, like was just an amazing, cohesive group of people that even through the just like crazy downs that we had, that team stuck together until the very, very end. And so like, that was just an invaluable lesson to learn from that experience. And then I like, I'm going through it. Like, I feel like every single one taught me something totally different. And I think, you know, the, my, my second venture back company, the, the boundless learning experience, the big lesson there was like, how do we get the stars to align? I think in Viximo, we kind of ended up in this just like massively growing market with huge amounts of opportunity and like growth actually came wasn't easy, but it wasn't like the hardest thing. I think in Boundless was it was really about 
the, the start of like, there's actually to get a company to work, you need to start aligning these key stars. Everybody talks about product market fit. But I think the big thing there is I really learned about the concept, which I've now called it is product channel fit of how like you actually have to build your product to fit with these with the specific distribution channels, as well as these other concepts of like model market and model product fit, which I'm happy to go into deeper. But I think we've oversimplified, you know, the company building process to like, oh, like all we have to do is get product market fit. And um, I actually don't think that's true anymore. So I learned a lot about that through there. And then I went as an EIR on the venture side, Trinity Ventures. And by that point, I had raised probably like $30 million of venture capital, maybe a little bit more, probably too much, right? And, you know, I think sitting, having a chance to sit on the other side of the table, I thought I knew how to raise money. But from that experience, I learned, I had no idea how much I still had to learn about what it really took and what like a really good pitch and fundraising looked like. And uh, and I still think a lot of entrepreneurs get this wrong, a lot of because like the be- the advice that they listen to about like what their pitch should include typically come from the VCs themselves. And I think from that experience, I realized the VCs don't even know what they respond to, right? It really kind of took like that outside observer to look at like what actually works in fundraising. Uh, and so I learned from that experience. And then HubSpot, man, that was that was a great two years as well. That was like my first large company. And there, you know, I learned a ton about just like organization and people to a depth that like, you know, at a scale, right, that um, was just totally different than anything that I had done before. And so like all of those have like, I think every single experience kind of teaches you something new. And I'm happy to go into any one of those uh, even deeper. Absolutely. That sounds like a bunch of amazing experiences. And as you pointed out, learning something new at each stage just, you know, prepares you for the next challenge. And so throughout these roles and experiences, how did you transition? Was there a transition between the mindset of these different roles like founder, CMO, product manager and growth? Or was the mindset really always the same? I probably didn't deal with the transitions well. (laughs) So I think they were different, right? Like between my first venture back company and the second venture back company, I think I was way too quick to jump into something new. Like I kind of like had that, like I had the bug. So like what I think what a lot of entrepreneurs do is, is I kind of draw this out for people now that are, that go through these transitions where, you know, we roll off of something and, you know, we're super exhausted because like maybe you've just spent like years just like dedicating yourself to something. And so the time off and the time away, like feels really good for, a pretty short period of time, month or less. But then like since we're used to being in this mode of like constantly running forward, you know, the anxiety starts to build, the feeling of like being unproductive and all that kind of stuff. And at that point, that's where like I see a lot of people in transition modes make their decision about what's next. And that's kind of like what I did at that point, right? Like that was that was the point I was at and make that decision. And what you really need to do is you need to like wait through that period until the anxiety resolves and you feel like you're in a more like stable, clear-minded state, right? Uh, Just because the potential to make really bad decisions at that like top point of anxiety, it's just much, much higher, right? And so I I think that was like, uh, I really kind of learned from that late. And I don't regret the boundless experience. Like I worked with some amazing co-founders and all that kind of stuff, but I think I would have made some different choices had I like waited that period out a little bit longer. I think the transition from that company to the EIR gig and then to HubSpot was like very, very different. And, you know, I, I spent probably about a year at that point trying to 
search for my next business to start. And I always tell people now, like if you're going to start a business, you kind of need to get three things to align. You need to get, you need to get the people, the purpose and the timing to align. And by timing, I mean, is it the right time for this specific idea, this specific purpose? And I think from that, I learned a couple things. One was like, you can't think your way through those things. You just have to like constantly be trying new stuff. So um, it's not like you can like sit in a VC office, like as an EIR and just like brainstorm a bunch of ideas and think your way out of the problem. It's much better to say, you know what? I got this idea. I don't know if it's the right idea. I don't know if it's the one I want to commit the next five years of my life to, but I'm going to spend 60 to 90 days just working on it. And I'm not going to ask those types of questions until the end of the 60, 90 days. I'll reevaluate, kind of like give yourself time to experiment. So that was like kind of like the big thing that I learned from that. I think the other thing was just like going into HubSpot. I think I kind of stumbled into this was like HubSpot for me. And the other recommendation I give was just a great place to have one foot in the known and one foot in the unknown. The one foot in the known for me at HubSpot was that I was helping start a new division. So I could really kind of start from those foundations of like, starting new things and and companies that I had done before. The unknown was like just operating at a scale and the level inside a much larger organization that I had never done before. Those are the perfect situations for like whatever's next in your career. Because basically by leveraging the known, you can have an impact, you know, really quickly and really build kind of like that internal cred and all of these other things that are really important to kind of propelling yourself forward. And then the one foot in the unknown just kind of like, forces you to like learn all sorts of new things. That's where like the personal progress really comes from. But you kind of need that balance because if you're like too far on one end of the spectrum or the other, you end up with different problems. Too much in the unknown and you you feel like you're kind of like, you don't have your feet under you and you're kind of lost at sea. Too much in the known, right? You get fucking bored and it just like, and you don't end up putting your full effort into it and you end up not being motivated. So I think that's like kind of the other thing to look for. You could probably sum that down to like, have patience, look for something one foot in the known, unknown. And if you're starting something, be patient until the stars align. And if the stars aren't aligning, find basically a new experience to buy yourself time to get those stars to align because it really is like a five to 10 year commitment and uh, it's going to drain every single ounce of energy out of you that you possibly have. Yeah, absolutely. That's really amazing insight, you know, coming from those experiences at HubSpot. And so on that note, how did you create the opportunity to join HubSpot? A little bit on accident. So I'd known from being in the Boston community, I'd known Darmesh, the founder, for a number of years, as well as a number of the executives that were there. That really started off as basically a consulting gig. I didn't know what I was looking for. Um, I basically started to take on a few consulting gigs. HubSpot was one of them. And just, you know, through the first couple months of that consulting gig, you know, uh, Mark Roberts, who was the, the chief revenue officer there at the time, just kind of like made a few offers. And at one point the offer became something that, you know, I couldn't really, uh, like I couldn't really refuse, like just not just in terms of uh, by offer, I don't mean just in terms of compensation and all that kind of stuff, but just the opportunity to work with a certain set of people within a, a very kind of like new environment that I didn't feel like there were that many chances around. Like they were, we were about a year from going you know, going public that at that point. So I pretty much knew that was going to be a guaranteed experience. The opportunity to launch something new within a much larger org with a ton more resources, that was a new thing, right? Like, so there was just like all these things that just felt like in some way, shape or form, like I was probably given an opportunity I didn't deserve at the time. And if you're given one of those opportunities, like I don't remember who gave this piece of advice, but I kind of firmly believe it now. It's just like grab that opportunity, like by the horns. 
and hang on for as long as you can because you're gonna you're gonna learn a ton and it's gonna create a ton of value for you just not now but like at like future in your career so that's kind of how that that's kind of how that came about over time that's really cool so speaking about building a new division and doing something completely new within HubSpot and this is gonna be a bit of a wide ranging question. But how do you as a VP of growth or someone who's building a growth team, how do you really approach figuring out how you can have an immediate impact on the growth funnel? So there's the systematic way to approach and evaluate like a product. That is one path. But then the other path is kind of like the people in the org path. So let's take the people in the org path off the table. Let's just look at the systematic process, right? What a lot of people do is they go in and they look at a product and they say, you know what, I think this is the bigger, biggest area of opportunity because I feel X, Y, Z, right? Very kind of gut, maybe intuition driven. Um, and I think that's the exact opposite way to go about it. The right way to approach it is you basically first take a systematic approach, a quantitative perspective, which uh, at Reforge we call like basically building a growth model, a forward projecting growth model. And what the growth model does is you basically pick like a key output, a key metric, thing that you want to solve for that could be anything depending it varies on the product it could be number of transactions it could be daily active users it could be weekly active users it could be monthly active teams it kind of really depends on the product but you take that and then you break it down into all of its different inputs and its variables you treat it like a math equation right because like weekly active users is the sum of like all your new activated users plus all of the retained users from previous cohorts. And then you can take those variables and break them down and then those variables and break them down even more, right? You keep doing that and you basically build this model and then you fill in the model and all the variables with basically where those numbers are performing at today. And then you drag that out for ideally 12 to 24 months. And what you end up with is basically a tool where you can start saying, okay, well, if I make this change in my product, I think it's going to affect this variable by this much. What effect does that have on my output? That thing I'm trying to solve for over time. And what ends up happening is rather than taking ideas that are gut and in, in kind of like comparing apples to oranges, you can take a whole set of ideas and start to compare apples to apples. And like, that's really important. So that's the quantitative perspective. On the other side of the equation, you need to take a systematic approach to the qualitative perspective, which is your user psychology. And your user psychology is really about the why, the motivations, like why your users make the decisions that they do, meaning why do they sign up? Why do they activate? Why do they not activate? Why do they retain? Why do they not retain? Like it's all the why questions, right? And the deeper we understand like those motivations and those whys, the more we'll be able to take those things, like bring them to life in the product and which is the things that actually move the numbers. And so you need to take those two perspectives and combine them to find the biggest area of opportunity. The hope is that you can do this and take a completely unbiased perspective and say, you know what, this is the biggest area of opportunity. We need to fix retention in this specific piece of retention or this piece of monetization or this piece of activation, whatever it might be. In reality, you go through that exercise and you're gonna come up with a set of candidates. And then you've got the people in the org question. And this is actually really important just because, especially if you're in a larger organization, there are certain like politics and ownership lines that you need to take into account when you decide to tackle new opportunities. And so there might be some places that because of the people in the org issues, even though it's the biggest opportunity, 
it might have five times more friction to actually influencing that piece of the funnel. And so you need to balance those two things to basically find your quickest path to success. You know, like at HubSpot, for example, like when I started off as a consultant, I basically carved out a piece that I knew that I could control pretty much all on my own. Right. It was complete. I was completely under my under my own control of destiny. I also knew that area, if it worked, and I had a pretty high confidence that it would work, that it would have a pretty big impact. And it did. And what that did is that bought me a bunch of cred to basically leverage that into the larger opportunity. And then I could take on all of these other pieces of the funnel where there was more people in organizational friction, things that were deeper in the product that required more engineers, more product managers, things of that nature. And then I, you know, I went like piece to piece at a time. What I didn't do is try to take the whole like kit and caboodle on. I see a lot of people like try to take the entire thing on at once and they just end up biting off too much or you basically, um, you set the wrong expectations. You basically say, well, I'm responsible for growth and this whole funnel, and then you don't have the right amount of resources to actually have the impact that you need to build sort of the cred and like really kind of like get that flywheel in motion. That's kind of how I approach it is like, once again, there's like the the strict perspective of the like growth model and user site perspective, and you use those as tools to like and levers to find the areas of opportunity. But then you also have to consider the people in the work path. If you're in a larger org, if you're in a small startup, you know, that's not necessarily an issue. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, really cool to have the insight and perspectives into how you're breaking down these big areas into their individual components so that you can go ahead and have an impact on them. I've never seen or heard it done quite like that before. So it was really, really insightful. Cool. So today you're the founder and CEO of Reforge. Can you tell us a bit more about what Reforge is all about and what motivated you to start it? Yeah. Okay. So it's a great question. So I guess I'll give you the the story and then um, just of like how it emerged and then kind of where we're at today. Um, so while, during my time at HubSpot, I had this amazing, like I had a phenomenal team and I would sit in these one-on-ones every single week with different members of my team. And somebody would inevitably say, like, ask me, like, how can they continue their professional development? And I saw it as an incredibly important thing to support the company like definitely provided the resources to support it. And so I was kind of, I was a little mystified, right? Like they had the resources available to them and, and you know, the buy-in from, from, you know, management and that type of stuff. So like, wh- why were they, why were they asking me? Like what, what was going on? And what I realized is that there weren't necessarily things that out there that they, you know, that really kind of fulfilled what they were looking for. A lot of them, they didn't see like the two-year MBA or the the traditional master's degree as really a path for them for a number of reasons, whether it was cost or time off of work or location or all those types of factors. There's a ton of great people out there, a ton of great companies out there that are helping people get jobs in certain places, um, like getting their first job in data science or as an engineer or a number of other a number of other factors. And so basically, as I saw this and they didn't know what to do, I didn't know what to recommend them. That made me feel like a crappy manager. So I decided to, that I was going to create something on my own. And once I decided I was going to create something on my own, I was like, you know, it's probably best to not just offer this to people internally at HubSpot, but people externally at HubSpot, because it's really important to build those peer-to-peer like practitioner relationships. Like that's been a big part of helping me in my career. So then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to promote this to like my blog subscriber list too, to see who else wants to join. And then once I did that, I found, you know, Andrew Chen who works on growth at Uber. He was thinking about a lot of the same things. And then we ended up combining forces and doing this MVP version together. That MVP version was just embarrassing. Like I'm still embarrassed of it today. Like it was embarrassingly bad, but it was still way better than anything 
that was out there for this group of people. And the results showed like we just the feedback and the things that they were able to take back to their career, mostly because these programs were one, they were way more relevant and applicable to like what they were actually doing. Two, they got to meet their other like quality peers who were facing very similar problems, solving very similar problems. We were able to do that. And then three, they were able to hear kind of the stories and the opinions from the leading practitioners out there, uh, which I think is really important. And so we've kind of brought that together today in Reforge. And we, I think it's really important because what I think has happened, especially over the past five to 10 years, is that the skill sets, especially within our within the technology domain, that we need to have to kind of stay relevant and stay at the top of our game are changing. And that change is accelerating. And so as that change accelerates, we need to be doing more and more things um, to take to stay on top of our game and to properly deliver on that, the traditional education system and stuff that we have right now is just not built to deliver on those really fast changes and those types of environments and those types of skill sets, which we call frontier skill sets um, that you really need today. And so Reforge is really about that. We basically provide master classes around these frontier skill sets. We bring together experienced practitioners around these topics that have emerged in importance over the past few years so that they can learn it and they can you know stay on top of their game at the same time. That's so amazing to hear how this kind of all come about and, and how you're just tackling it in, in different verticals. Like we're, we're seeing a lot of courses around user experience design, product design, development, but it's great to see how, you know, you're building courses that center on building high level cohesive growth strategies. So what are some of the biggest challenges or mistakes you see other growth practitioner making? Oh, wow. A lot. <laughs> so I think um, I'm trying to narrow down. <laughs> I'm trying to like narrow down the things. So I think... Okay. The, first and foremost, I kind of, I started to beat this drum like four years ago and I'm glad to see it's taking hold, but it's probably still worth beating, you know, this drum a couple more times. One is that it's much more about the process and the system versus the individual tactics themselves. So I still see a lot of people like they're really focused on the individual tactics of I can do this, I can do that. But the issue with that is that one is, you know, what there's a few issues with it. What works for other companies is not necessarily going to work for you. Every product is basically a unique set of variables, even two competing products, right? The audience, the product, the value prop, all sorts of things. That Number one. Number two is that uh, the tactics change extremely quickly. So even if you hit on one, two, three, four, five tactics, your luck is eventually going to run out. And so you need to make sure that you're really amazing at the system and the process to consistently basically evaluate the new opportunities and like those two things that we were talking about, the growth model and the user psych and, you know, bring those and continually test those ideas in very efficient forms. So that's number one, definitely about the process over the tactic. Number two is kind of getting back to what I was talking about before. I think a lot of people realize that the job in growth, whether it's on the marketing and the product side, has certainly moved in a more technical and analytical direction. But I think what we're losing in the process is, as we go down this analytical path, is the balance of understanding that qualitative and that user psych component at the same time. So once again, like the numbers help us with the what, the user psych helps us with the why. And the best, the most amazing growth practitioners I see are the ones that are able to balance and blend those two things um, together at the same time. And so basically leaning towards one or the other, I think you really need to seek balance on those two. And the pursuit of getting better at those two, that both the, the quantitative analytical thinking as well as the qualitative like psychological components are it's 
it's a never ending endeavor, right? Like you can, there's so much depth to those two things. You can always get better at it, right? Like it's not like you take, you know, a simple course or read a few blog articles and you know the topic. That's not even, that's not even close, right? So that's, that's probably, I would say that's probably like the second mistake I see. And then the third is that, and this is more of a, this is more of like a personal pet peeve of mine than others is like, I think just in the ecosystem as a whole, we have a ton of like, it's a giant game of telephone going on. And uh, in the sense that basically one person will like do an amazing presentation or a piece of content. And then you basically have about 12 to 20 others that take it and like copy it or aggregate it or try to smash it together with other insights to produce like more content. And this is largely driven by like a lot of B2B companies needing leads and they're targeting this audience and all that kind of stuff. But what ends up happening is that the message gets so diluted in the process and things end up getting confused. And I'll just give you like one example. So I'm sure you guys have read about like Yaha moment and uh, Facebook's like seven friends in 10 days. Are you guys familiar with that? Yep. Okay, great. So I could probably point you to about 50 blog posts right now that are that talk about that moment. And they talk about that's your activation moment. Well, guess what? That's not right. And neither is the definition of seven friends in 10 days around the aha moment. So let me break that down for a little bit. Your aha moment, there's two steps on the path to activation. The first is that you need to get the, the person to their core value prop and experience that core value prop as, as quickly as possible. That's the aha moment. But the aha moment in Facebook's case is not seven friends in 10 days. The aha moment is getting to the feed the first time and having a really interesting feed. The seven friends in 10 days is just the thing that you need to get the users to the aha moment. And a lot of people don't understand that dis that distinction. So what they end up with is this like inevitable path of like looking for this magical number around their aha moment when they really need to be thinking about it from a qualitative perspective first. So that's the first problem. The second problem is they mix up that moment with the activation moment. The activation moment is not about getting the person to the core value prop. It's about the signal that the user has built a habit around that core value prop. And there's a totally different metric there that defines that moment. And so you see this in the reverse too, right? Like a lot of people say like Slack's activation moment or Slack's aha moment is uh, 2000 messages sent in the group. And that's wrong. That's their activation moment. They have a totally different aha moment. And it's like these types of subtleties, right? They get lost in like this game of telephone. They get lost in this game of telephone that we're, that we're doing because we just end up like copying each other's messages without like truly understanding it. And so I would heavily caution people out there to make sure like as you're absorbing a lot of this stuff that's being written, take a really fine eye to like who's writing it, like really put it through your filters, try to really understand it at a much deeper level. Cause I'm afraid like we're just kind of like skimming the surface a little bit uh, too much. So those are probably my top three things. That last one was a little bit of a, uh, I went on a little tangent there, so I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree especially with the last point, you know, pertaining to the game of telephone as an analogy for what's happening out there with the loss of intent and the original meaning as everyone's just in a rush to get these growth tactics, but don't really take the time to understand the nuances and details of their individual product or industry, as well as the user psychology behind it, as you mentioned. But if I can push that further in, in, a, in a sense, what are some of the pieces of content that you'd recommend or keep coming back to growth or otherwise? Yeah, I think most of the time that I spend, most of the stuff that I spend my personal time on 
are more of those foundational subjects uh, that, that we've discussed. So more around like the behavioral psychology uh, like piece of it, um, mostly because like if I had to self-assess, that's probably where like my biggest weakness is. And then on the flip side is just a lot of different like analytical thinking stuff. So different, different ways to like break down, you know, like break down different problems, recognize the patterns, bring them back up. I tend to read things around those. And so those don't necessarily come from what you would probably label as like industry experts or something like those are coming from other places, just like different types of books and different types of research. That's probably where I spend most of my time. But I think like if you're looking at I would just like very pay very attention to like who's doing the writing, like like what have they actually practiced on, and uh, like what have they like like what have they actually done. So like, is this insight coming from somebody who has spent a ton, like a number of years, like evaluating quality of the company is really hard to do from the outside, but um, a lot of name brand stuff. So I always just err toward the side of the people like you know like Casey Winters, Andrew Chen, and Andy Johns, and like all the names that are out there. Joanna Lord from ClassPass, like those are the two places is that I recommend focusing the consumption time is that like that base foundation level material and then the small set of content that's being published by those other people. And then I would, you know, occasionally read, consume stuff that kind of lives in the spectrum in between. But you need to, once again, you need to make sure you're applying a pretty heavy filter there. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. And so we've discussed a lot of different things throughout the course of the episode. Do you have any final thoughts or personal mottos that you think other people should know about? You know, one, I think a lot about, and I've written a lot about this before of like, as I have spent more and more years in the industry, I'm just a huge believer in focus from all angles, not just how you spend like your own time, but like focus of a company, everything down to like focus of an audience. I like one of the big things that I learned at HubSpot was that they were constantly reevaluating focus in a number of different ways, shapes and forms. So Dharmesh, the founder actually just posted this, this presentation that he called like aligning vectors which was based on a conversation he had with Elon Musk. I recommend everybody to to go out there and and read it. That was more about strategic focus, but there's also this great HBS case study written about how HubSpot, like they didn't, they kind of struggled the first few years, like the first three to four years. And one of the pivotal moments in that trajectory for them was that they did this huge kind of persona and an audience analysis. And they made the decision, they found like four or five different personas within their existing audience base. And they made the decision decision to cut all but one of them. Imagine how hard of a decision that is. When you're in a startup, you're scraping for every dollar of revenue and you're going to say, here's these four audience groups that are paying us. We're going to not focus on them anymore, right? Like that's unbelievably hard, but it was the pivotal turning point in that company because once they made that decision, it basically improved every single metric you could possibly imagine in the company from acquisition to sales efficiency to retention everything. And so I think like some of the biggest decisions that in the biggest turning points, whether you're looking at like a company or a growth strategy or a personal, like professional decision, you know, the the biggest moments, the biggest turning points always come down to actively choosing like what we're not going to do and sticking with it. And that's a very like simple thing to say, but I think it's like an incredibly and massively hard thing to do. And so like, that's probably what I like, I really obsessed over like the past five years is I keep I keep like pairing things back and and really starting to narrow in on like focus of different areas. So that I think that's probably the the best word to leave everybody with. Yeah, I completely agree. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. And if anybody has questions for me, they can just email me 
at uh, brian at reforge.com or they can uh, my info is on my site too at just brianbelfour.com either one of those if you've enjoyed this podcast we'd love to hear about it and have you share with friends find us on facebook or twitter at hack to start or drop us an email hey at hack to start.com you can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.